0: A very warm welcome to you on this, the 25th of February. It, uh, it did seem cold last night, but it is good to see the sunshine and the warmth and the first buds of spring appearing. It, uh, it is always nice to emerge from winter and start to see the warmth of the sun on our faces. Our reading this morning is from First Peter, and uh, it's quite a short one. But it is in First Peter, it's either in your diary um, or please do look it up in your Bible um, or on your iPad or other device. And uh, we'll read together First uh, Peter chapter 2 and picking up at verse 11 and on through to verse 17. I'll be reading from the ESV. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Amen.
1: Thank you, Nigel, and good morning, everyone. Let me add to Nigel's welcome, and let me encourage you to turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2, 1 Peter chapter 2, those verses that were read for us earlier. I think there comes a point in almost everyone's childhood when you just simply cannot wait to be an adult. Uh, Already I hear questions like, when I'm 18, can I... But the truth is, there's lots about being an adult that isn't fun. And it isn't the picture of freedom that we imagine it will be when we're a child asking the question, when I'm 18, can I? There are things that are hard about being an adult. You've got to work. You've got to use your money responsibly. You may have the privilege of being responsible for a family. And then there's the really hard stuff like paying taxes on your income, taxes on your house, taxes on your car, and if you own a car, you've got to have it serviced, you've got to have it MOT'd, and if you own your home, there's rules about how you have to maintain it. Well, there are some people in our world who resent all of this sort of stuff so much That they've decided that they're just not going to submit to it any longer. They're not going to put up with it for a minute longer. For example, there are groups in the U.S. who call themselves sovereign citizens. They do not believe that the government has any rightful authority over them. They are by rights free to rule themselves, and so they do not pay, for example, any taxes to the government. There are others in the U.S., there's a pattern here, um, who have gone further than that. They've bought a plot of land and have declared it to be an independent country. Eleven acres of an independent country. They don't like the ruling authorities and so they step away and they say, no, we are going to be sovereign over ourselves and be independent. And though that does sound a bit wacky to us, it is in effect how many Christians approach their relationship to the world around them. They think that because they belong to Jesus Christ and they are citizens of Christ's kingdom, that the rules that are laid down by men and women down here somehow don't apply to us and especially don't apply to us if we don't like those who govern over us. And so, you will find some who will push to an extreme and say, well, because the government doesn't spend our money well, and maybe even spends our money on some bad things, then I'm no longer going to pay any taxes to the government. Good luck with that. Or perhaps more likely, many of us think that those who rule over us are there for us to complain about. How we relate to them doesn't matter very much at all. Well, our reading this morning has something to say about all of that. This letter of 1 Peter was written to Christians who lived on the outskirts of the Roman Empire nearly 2,000 years ago. They lived in a world where Caesar, the emperor, dominated life. He was regarded as an object of worship. Subjects were made to make offerings to Caesar and to declare, Caesar is Lord. And many think that this letter was written during the reign of Emperor Nero, someone who was no friend of Christianity, who would openly persecute Christians, and under whose reign Peter, who wrote this letter, would ultimately be executed. And so how do Christians survive in that world, in the world where Caesar is Lord? How do they live as God's chosen people in a world like that? Because the rulers are bad, does that mean that, well, Christians can ignore them? Should they refuse to recognize the rule of Rome and declare themselves an independent country or a group of sovereign citizens? Well, You may have noticed that's not the instruction that Peter gives these Christians, This section of Peter's letter that we're starting into today presents lessons on living for God in the world, and he's going to tackle a number of different areas, and the first one we see this morning is he tackles how you should relate to rulers and the government. But first of all, what he does in verses 11 and 12 is he introduces this section with some general principles that always will apply. He addresses these Christians in verse 11 as beloved, and that is in some way summarizing what he spent the first chapter and a half doing. He's shown them that they are loved by God. They truly are God's people. They really do belong to Jesus Christ, and there is a great hope that is stored up for them in heaven, which Jesus Christ is keeping secure for them. Yeah, they're beloved, loved by God. Now, many people assume that if you're a Christian, or maybe I put it a different way, if you're a good Christian, then actually you shouldn't find that there's anything that's too difficult for you to deal with in life. Because a good Christian will always have an undivided heart that is focused on Jesus and that will enable you to glide on through life. And it's this kind of false idea that has been a deep, deep discouragement to many Christians along the way. But thankfully, Peter, in writing his letter, he doesn't deal with us with empty pick-me-ups or, or inspirational but hollow words, he has no time for that kind of thing, he deals very much in reality, and he tells us in verses 11 and 12 that living for God is a battle. Living for God is a battle. And he tells these Christians that the way this battle will be fought is by avoiding something and by pursuing something else. Christians are exiles in this world. This is is how Peter opened his letter, describing them as exiles. They're not at home, not yet. They're here in this world, as that word there in verse 11 is, sojourners. They're visitors here in this world. And as God's people they are, verse 11, to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Living for God is a battle. There is something that is waging war against your soul. And this is inevitable. I mean, think about what happens when someone becomes a Christian before they were a Christian, they are what the Bible would elsewhere describe as dead in trespasses and sins, enslaved to the ways of the world, enslaved to the devil, enslaved to our own lusts. And that's still how it is in our world today. That's how it was in every one of us before we were a Christian. How many people are bound by the need to be liked and popular according to this world's standards? How many have convinced themselves that the only way to be happy is to satisfy their every lust? That's what we call being true to ourselves. And so this describes everyone to some degree or another. Before we were Christians, that's that's just how it was. But when someone becomes a Christian... When they recognize that they are living for self and not for God is what separates them from God. When they believe that Jesus Christ is the only one who can make them right with God through His perfect life, through His sin-atoning death, through His life-giving resurrection. When they trust in Jesus, they receive forgiveness of sins. They receive the Holy Spirit to dwell within them. This is wonderful. New life has been granted where before there was just deadness. New desires come from the Spirit who dwells within. A new pattern of life is established in this person. They're walking in a new direction, headed towards a new hope, and all because they've trusted in Jesus. And all of this is received as a gift from God through faith in Jesus Christ. What good news! What good news! And good news that everyone needs to receive. Good news that everyone here needs to receive. Well, when someone becomes a Christian, I'm getting there, they have new life by the Spirit of God, but they're still living in this weak body. And still within us is what the Bible calls and what Peter here calls in verse 11, the flesh. So when you become a Christian, you have started a war. Because before we had the desire to do what we pleased and we followed that desire where it led us, but now there's a new desire, a desire to follow Jesus. We've been given the power to do that, but the flesh, the flesh keeps cropping up and waging war against your soul. The Apostle Paul in Romans 7 would say, when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? As a Christian, Paul writes those words about this struggle, this war that is going on within him. And here is the daily battle that every believer in Christ faces. The passions of the flesh wage war against your soul. The temptation to live according to the old sinful nature oh, I want to do what is right, I want to be self-controlled, but I just have this overwhelming urge to lose my patience and be angry with my kids all the time. I want to trust God, but I find myself obsessing about money. I want to keep my mind pure, but I just cannot stop watching that series that's full of nudity. I want to reflect the mercy and grace of Jesus in my life, but it's so much more satisfying to never forgive her for what she said to me. Friends, there's a war raging, isn't there? A war raging against our soul in the heart and mind of every Christian. And Peter says, you've got to know this is the arena of the battle, you must not be ruled by the flesh anymore. Instead, as he puts it in verse, verse 12, your conduct ought to be honorable. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. When he says among the Gentiles, that's his way of saying among the pagans, among the non-Christians. And when he speaks about conduct that is honorable, he means conduct That is honorable in God's sight. And in the rest of this letter, Peter shows us just what that honorable conduct looks like. But see, first of all, here why this matters so much. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. You see, says Peter, it will be the case that because you're a Christian, you will be spoken against. People will call you all sorts of things. They will assume that you're, you're bad, and for no other reason than just because you follow Jesus. But because you keep your conduct honorable, that will do something to those who would speak against you. They assume you're bad, but when they see your good deeds, your commitment to live in a particular way, your eagerness to love God and to love your neighbor, it will lead them to glorifying God on the day of visitation. This day of visitation is surely the return of Jesus Christ. And surely then what Peter envisages is that when Jesus comes back, to judge sinners, and to deliver the fullness of salvation to His people, that on that day, some of these Gentiles who saw what they assumed to be evildoers doing good deeds in the name of Jesus will be able to glorify in those good deeds because they were a turning point for them that ultimately led them to faith. There's an obvious point to be made here. This sort of thing that Peter imagines would never be possible if our solution to living in the world was simply to declare ourselves an independent nation. He envisages here that these believers will live out this honorable life in the midst of this world that they're in, not isolating themselves from it. If we decide that we don't need to engage terribly meaningfully in this world, then we can be sure, we can be sure that no one will be glorifying God for our good deeds on the day of visitation. Anyway, we need to get into the subject that he goes on to from verse 13 to 17, and this is the first area he specifically tackles in what it means for the Christian to live in this world. He's gonna think about how slaves relate to masters, wives relate to husbands, and there are several others as well coming up. In principle, Peter says to us in verses 13 to 17, living for God means learning submission. Living for God means learning submission. Peter says, therefore, don't declare yourself a sovereign citizen No, verse 13, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. And he explains what sort of institutions he has in mind, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. And you see there, don't you, that in general, these governors are there for a good purpose, they help to maintain order. They punish what is evil. They reward what is good. And so, accordingly, the Christian is to be one who is known for, verse 15, doing good. They're not here, we are not here to be lawbreakers. Christians are not here to be agitators, but to be those who do good. And you see that result again in verse Fifteen, don't you? This is the will of God that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. So again, there's that pattern, isn't it? That people who would come to a certain conclusion about Christians upon seeing how they live, about seeing how they conduct themselves, their minds are changed. They're not able to speak against them as they would have done before. Notice with me that the main driving motivation for this submission is not because you are bound to these rulers and authorities in some way. It's because you are bound to God. That's what he says to these Christians. That's why you submit to these authorities. Not because you're bound to them, but because you are bound to God. So, verse 16, Christians are described as living as servants of God's, which is literally slaves of God. But here's the wonderful thing about being a slave to God it is, as he puts it in verse 16, to live as people who are free. I mean, look at this throughout this section. Verse 13, he says, Submission to authority is for the Lord's sake. In verse 15, he says, it is the will of God, and in verse 16, he says, it is living as servants of God. The motivation for this submission does not rest in the emperor, doesn't rest in the governor, doesn't rest in the first minister. The motivation resides in God and in the liberty that He has given to everyone who belongs to Jesus. Now, we often stumble here, I think, Because we think of liberty as a freedom to do whatever we want. Well, that's not how we understand spiritual freedom. The freedom we have when we become a Christian is a freedom that we could never have had otherwise. It is the freedom to live a life that is pleasing to God. It is freedom not to sin. That's never a freedom that you could have outside of Christ. And yet here it is, true liberty is found in belonging to Christ, in being a slave of God. It's the freedom to live a life pleasing to God, to be released from slavery to sin, released from slavery to self, and to do the things that please and honor Him. Christian liberty is not freedom to sin. You already had that. That's not liberty. And so, Christian freedom will be exercised here, says Peter, in submitting to authority. And so, what do we think that entails? It entails obeying the law. Peter has a lot to say in these verses about doing good, knowing that the authorities punish evil and honor good. So, You might not like paying your taxes. You might even think that some of the taxes you pay are unfair. You might even go as far as to use the word immoral. You may object strongly to how some of that tax money is spent. But I think Peter is saying to us it would surely only be in very rare circumstances that a Christian could honestly say, I'm not going to submit to pay my taxes to the government. Think of the poll tax riots 35 years ago. You might have thought it was unfair, but you could never claim Christian liberty as a reason for not paying. You see, we're not here to be political revolutionaries. And so, when Caesar says, This is the tax, then you pay the tax. And so, when it comes to the organizing, the machinery of the state, our default position, if you like, is to be one of submission. And that's submission to lots of things that we don't like speed limits parking charges, health and safety regulations, employment law. But there are limits. And this is where this subject gets tricky. I mean, it would just be so much easier to say, look, just do as you're told, right? But there are limits. Because just remember who it is that writes this letter. This is Peter. He's giving this instruction to these Christians, but this is the same Peter who, addressing people who had authority over him, said, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. We must obey God rather than men. I mean, there was nobody more rebellious than Peter. If you read Acts 4, Acts 5, he's dragged in before the authorities and they say, hey, stop talking about Jesus. And he goes out the next day and does it again. He was a rebel against the authorities. And this is what else we need to notice in this passage we're considering today. The call to submit is with a very clear understanding of who's who in the world. You notice that particularly in this rapid fire summary in verse 17 where we finished. Look what he says there. He says, Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. You see the, the honor that he says we are to afford to the emperor is not as some kind of exalted being, he is honored as just a man. I mean, you see that he says, honor everyone, and it 's the same word at the end of the verse honor. The emperor, he is to be honored as a man. He is not to be honored as some kind of uh, demigod. He is not to be offered sacrifices to. He is to be honored as a man, just as we would honor everyone. It brings the emperor down, doesn't it? I mean, he's calling us to honor the emperor, but compared to the, the cult of emperor worship in the Roman Empire, Peter is bringing the emperor down to the level of everyone. We are to love the brotherhood, love the Christian family, and it is God alone who we are called to fear, to revere Him, to recognize Him as the highest authority over us. The way in which we submit to God is not in the way that we submit to anyone else. We submit to God alone as supreme. And so, in Peter's case back in the book of Acts, the authorities are telling him to stop telling people about Jesus. Peter says, well, Jesus told us to do this, so who do you think I'm going to listen to? He submits to Christ as supreme. And this is where the limits lie. Whenever any authority would tell you to do something that means going against what God has told you to do going against what God has said you should do, then don't do it. In fact, I go so far as to say, you dare not do it. So should we be told to stop proclaiming the gospel here? Should we be told to stop calling sinful things sin? Should we be forced to solemnize relationships that dishonor God? Should we be told to lie about reality because it might hurt someone's feelings? then in all of these things we cannot do it. We cannot. And friends, there may well come a time where civil disobedience is what is called for. Because when the ruling authorities start to tell us how and whether we can keep the commandments of God, when they start to tell us how we worship, how we gather, then... They've crossed into a territory that they have no right to be in. I suppose I think about it like this. Um, Just because the government or the ruling authorities lay down a law about something, that is not a sufficient standard for us. Now, in general, 99 times out of 100, you will submit to the laws that are laid down because there's no reason not to but actually the reason why we submit to them is not because we submit to the Scottish Government or to Westminster Parliament, it is because we submit to the Lord Himself. And so everything is looked at through that lens. Now we've been through uh, a season in life where uh, in fact the government did close down our churches, right? And how do we make sense of all of that? I think we make sense of it this way, regardless of what we got right or got wrong looking back, we do not agree to stop meeting together as God's people just because the government says so. That is not a good enough reason. God's called us to gather to worship Him. So there may be reasons why we don't gather, but the main thing is not just because the government has made a rule, but it is because it actually might be more honoring not to meet if we can think of such circumstances. It might be the prudent thing not to do it. And so it is to say that we don't automatically submit to the government in all things, because any submission we make is out of allegiance to Jesus. In Jeremiah's time, he lived in the period when the Israelites were deported from Jerusalem to Babylon. That was the era of the first exiles. And they had to figure out how do they live for God in Babylon. This isn't their home. They're yearning to be back in Jerusalem, but they're going to be in Babylon for 70 years. What do they do? Just sit tight, not do anything? God gave them a message through Jeremiah on how they should think about their exile. He says this to them, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, And I believe we take that principle of what that meant for those exiles, to seek the welfare of the city, we bring that sort of lens to what we're reading in First Peter. And Peter is surely saying, Christians, the mark of your submission will be that you're good citizens. Good citizens. Now, we have privileges that these early Christians that Peter wrote to didn't have. We, at least in theory, have access to parts of our democratic system. We can vote in or vote out who represents us. And I think we should be far more engaged with our lawmakers than we are. We should be speaking up on abortion, on assisted dying, on gender recognition, on conversion therapy. Not because we like to have a fight, not even because the government is our enemy, but because that's how exiles seek the welfare Of the city. We're not to just hunker down, sit tight, Jesus is coming. We are to seek the welfare of the city precisely because Jesus is coming. So, we try and draw these things together as we close. When when you speak up in that way as a good citizen, respectful, honoring those whom God has placed in authority over us, when you nail your allegiance to Jesus to the mast, then it is going to be the case that people will speak against you, be prejudiced against you. But Peter is saying here, at the same time, as we live honorable lives, you should expect people to say, you know, when I heard them speak about abortion or marriage or believing in Jesus, I just thought they were a bunch of bigots. But I've seen how they love each other. I've seen how they're willing to serve their community. I've seen the good lives that they live and I can't just ignore that. Friends, living for God is a battle and it requires us to learn submission. Here's how Paul summarized that to Titus, he said, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. This is the fruit of a life lived in liberty, and a liberty that comes to us because we're servants of God. This is the fruit of Christ-likeness in us, because we have come to him and found the new life that only he can bring. And it is on that foundation of faith in Jesus that this kind of submission can only only be built. And so as we prepare our hearts to come back to that foundation again, to gather around this table, to remember the Lord Jesus Christ... To remember where the, the, the impetus, the desire and the energy and the strength to live this, this life lived for God in the world comes from. That we're brought again to see that it's him in us that we want the world to see far more than us in us. Well, let's take a moment to pray. Father, we thank you for these words. Lord, these are hard things for us to navigate, particularly as we live in a society that is avowedly secular, where there is in many quarters hostility to the gospel. And Lord, I pray that you would give each one of us wisdom as we try to live for you in this world. We confess we haven't always got everything right. We come to you afresh and we pray that you would Lord, help us to be known for the honorable lives that we live. Lord, whatever the stands we may take, however we may speak up and seek the welfare of the city, Lord, we pray that it would never be to the detriment of lives that reflect the gentleness, the loveliness, and the honorableness of our Savior, the Lord Jesus. Lord, we need you. We are in a spiritual battle day by day where the desires of the flesh would make war against our soul. Lord, help us not to depend upon our own strength, but the strength that you supply by your Spirit within us day by day. And as we prepare our hearts now to remember the Lord Jesus Christ, Lord, we pray the reality of what has happened as we've come to him in faith would strike us afresh. We ask it in Jesus'
0: name. Amen. Let's say the words of the grace together now as we conclude our service. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all.